Talk about food and music, eating and grooving, munching and moving, forking and spooning, listening to tunes. Yeah, dinner's on soon, and to get ready for, ready for peanut butter and jams. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with host Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9. Exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood. And a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning. The endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the host, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's peanut butter and jams. Hello and welcome to uh, Peanut Butter and Jams. Um, I am Jordy. Brenda cannot make it this week because she is in Turkey um, on vacation. Um, sounds lovely. Uh, we have with us in studio today Michelle Catherine Nelson, um, author of The Urban Homesteading Cookbook. Um, hello, Michelle. Hey, everybody. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking to her a lot about the cookbook and what uh, sort of ideas are behind it. Uh, this show. Um, we'll come back uh, just a little, in just a little bit after this song by Sunbelt. 
Um, this song is called Country of Mad Men. <laughs> Spare our 
And we are back. Um, that was Sunbelt um, off of their new album, Ca- Cable Core. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that. It could be Cable Core. That song is called Country of Mad Men. Really nice. Nice and relaxing. As I said before, I am in studio with Michelle Catherine Nelson. Do you prefer Michelle Nelson? Michelle Catherine Let's Nelson. Let's Michelle Catherine Nelson. And... Um, we are here to talk about her book, um, The Urban Homesteading Cookbook, Forage, Farm, Ferment, and Feast for a Better World. Um, can you tell us, uh, what, what is your book? Like, what's, what's it about? How, do you, how would you describe it to your grandmother? To my grandmother. Well, or, it's dedicated or, or to anyone. my grandmother, so I wish that I could describe it to my grandmother, but she passed before. So my grandmother was one of the inspirations behind this. Um, it's a book that's... Oh, yeah, you were going to put that in the intro. I knew that. Um, <laughs> it's a book that's focused around food, and it has a lot of recipes, thus being a cookbook, but it also has a lot of um, instruction about how to go back to doing things yourself, cooking from whole ingredients, um, foraging and growing things yourself if you can, um, plants and animals, and uh, fermenting and preserving. Um, and sort of the background, my, my interest in it, the background behind it is more about um, sustainable living and conservation of, mm-hmm. of the landscapes that we live in, even urban landscapes. Um, so what sort of, uh, like there's a lot of recipes in this book, and there's a lot of like supplemental information too um, that's more about, I guess, how you would go about foraging or doing things um, here. Uh, you talked a little bit about in the introduction, you talked a little bit about how you were trying to blend two lifestyles that you had. Like one was like your city lifestyle and one was your country lifestyle. So it, this is all aimed at doing things in the city. Yes. Or near the city anyways. Yeah. So I started, um, I, I mean, I'd always done a lot of things myself. So I experimented with preserving and I canned. I learned how to can from my grandma and my mom and... Um, so I had sort of had a background in doing that, um, but and I also um, you know studied conservation biology and got to know local plants a little bit. So I sort of had started already, but living in the city, um, I always felt like I didn't have the space, or I wasn't really allowed, or it was kind of frowned, frowned upon um, to do a lot of the kinds of things that I wanted to do, like you know having chickens, which is now allowed in Vancouver, but it wasn't always, or um, you know, I never really had the space to have chickens anyway, since you have to have a mm-hmm. backyard, um, or uh, being able to grow fruit. You know, mm-hmm. it's really difficult. I, I felt like it was really difficult to do that in the city, and sort of, sort of that's where the polarity was, mm-hmm. is that I love living in an urban space because you have the opportunity to go out and see a lot of, you know, art and culture, and there's always tons of great food. I love going out to restaurants and seeing what, you know, the urban food scene's doing, and so I loved that, but I felt like I really wanted to be able to do things myself, and mm-hmm. I was frustrated. And so at one point, you know, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in East Van, and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to start doing it. So, you know, I had been doing some foraging and preserving, but I decided I wanted to start keeping animals. So I started keeping rabbits in my living room. Um, how how did that go? Like, uh, you, did you have a little hutch for them? or Yeah, uh, I actually had quite a big hutch for them because mm-hmm. one of my concerns was making sure that they were happy and healthy, mm-hmm. um, you know, because then it's healthier for you. And obviously mm-hmm. it's more ethical than getting your proteins from factory farms. Yes. Um, and that's sort of what led me to that because I, I actually studied agriculture here at UBC. Why did you choose um, rabbits as opposed to 
I don't know, any other thing that you can raise? Uh, well, being it being my living room that I'm living in, um, yeah. I wanted something that was quiet, um, fairly clean. You can litter box train rabbits. Um, so I thought, you know, after doing some research, they're quiet, they're easy to care for. Um, you can keep them happy as long as they have uh, a lot of vegetation to chew up and they have some opportunity for hiding certainly um but you can sort of get at a lot of the needs that they have in a smaller space um, and they sort of fit in better with an indoor space because they're not smelly they're not loud um yeah so i made a, a hutch for them that was quite large like much mm -hmm. bigger than somebody might have in their backyard like a typical hutch so it was about um, you know, 10 by 9, I think, which sounds like it's big, and it was... Sounds pretty big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was quite big compared to the typical hutch, but it really only took up maybe a third of my living room. Mm -hmm. And sure, whenever people would come to the door, immediately they open the door, and there's this giant, you know, wire hutch that's full of all kinds of branches that I'd collected from the neighborhood, and, you know, people's prunings from their trees, and weeds that I'd collected in empty lots, and like, sure, that seems kind of weird, but it gave me the opportunity to tell people about why I was doing which, mm -hmm. which was all about sustainability and you know wanting to be more ethical because you know I hadn't eaten meat for 10 years before that and mm -hmm. some of my proteins a lot of my proteins were coming from outside the local area and some of them were even coming from like the Brazilian rainforest where the rainforest had been destroyed and all the animals there were dead and you know just coming to the conclusion that growing my own meat is the most ethical thing for me to do so it was, mm -hmm. it was hard it was an experiment really but um, starting with rabbits, I thought that's, you know, it's a small step, but it's a significant step. Is it strange? Like, did you grow attached? I know that some, like, do you have a background in farming? I know that people who have backgrounds in farming tend to not get attached to animals they raise for meat, but people who don't sometimes do. Yeah. I was just curious. Um, no, it's a really good question. I think that we, um, you know, in our culture, we make a really obvious distinction between pets and farm animals. Mm -hmm. But really, that's just something that we make up. And it really just is about our own perspectives. So I had never had farm animals before. Um, and I'd always had pets. And I love animals. And that's why I decided that I wanted to do this. Because I mm -hmm. wanted any animals that I'm eating to have the best life they could. And I felt like I was the, you know, I wanted to be responsible for any animals I was eating. Because mm -hmm. I felt like I could do the best job. But I also really love animals. So that was why it was an experiment was because I thought, you know, can I actually do this? Mm -hmm. Can I actually be involved from start to finish, including the end, this, the slaughter and the butcher? Mm -hmm. Can I do that? Because I feel like if I'm going to eat the meat, I should be able to be involved in the whole process. And I'm guessing you did. Was it, um, were you apprehensive about it when it came time to? Uh, I don't know if I would say apprehensive, but I certainly took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time doing research, talking to people that had done it before. Um, I even went online and watched videos of, you know, ethical and humane ways of doing it and, hmm. you know, spent a lot of time discussing and thinking and, you know, probably more time than other people would have. Like my dad, for example, uh, grew up on a hobby farm and I asked, right. I enlisted his help because I think it does help to have somebody that's done it before to at mm -hmm. least, you know, walk you through it the first time or, you know, it does help to have a, a mentor and some, mm -hmm. to some extent. But, you know, his perspective, like you were saying with people that grow up on farms might you know, might be a little bit more cavalier than I really wanted to, yeah. to feel myself. So I made my dad, uh, well, I asked him about what, what he would do. And, and he said, you know, this is the method I would do. It's obvious. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I want to make sure that the rabbits are, you know, humanely treated as much as possible. So I made him sit down and watch YouTube videos about humane 
methods mm-hmm. for a couple hours and, you know, discuss it and talk about it. And at the end of it, I realized, oh, yeah, no, his way was probably the most humane <laughs> way. <laughs> but it was great because he humored me and he took me very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, at the end of it, I felt like, okay, I've educated myself and, you know, this is the right choice. It's probably worth it for him to just check in and see, oh, is it the best way? Oh, yeah. It is yeah, the best exactly. Way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so do you, you still raise rabbits. Yeah. Um, how many rabbits do you raise at a time? Um, do you have the same hutch as before? or? Yeah, yeah I do have the same hutch as before. Um, in an apartment, I would say the most you'd want to do is two females and one male, just mm-hmm. because, you know, to give them enough space. And, you know, you have to take care of them, clean up after them and feed mm-hmm. them. And so the maintenance would be too much if you mm-hmm. wanted to do more than that. And also the requirements for somebody living in the city, either a single or a couple or, or even a family, mm-hmm. you don't want more than that because rabbits are really prolific. And um, even with two... Were, were they breeding quite profusely right then? so you keep the females and the, and the males separated mm-hmm. so that you can control when the breeding happens mm-hmm. um and so we didn't breed them all the time we only we only really breed them maybe three or four times a year which is not very much mm-hmm. so commercially if if you had rabbits breeding for you know breeders to sell as pets or or even to um, raise rabbit meat you'd probably breed them you know eight times a year so we're less than half of right. what you what commercially you would do so like we're not pushing them really hard so it's not as stressful for the females Mm -hmm. um but even then if you have two females and they're each breeding three or four times a year and then each litter is you know between four and maybe ten kits right that's a lot of rabbits that's a lot of rabbit yeah yeah so i mean you could if it was a couple or even a small family you could just have your rabbits and have that be almost your entire protein source and Mm -hmm. then maybe be supplementing it from some other local protein that you can get that you know is a sustainably raised animal or you know sustainably fished or you know whatever it is Mm -hmm. yeah go fishing catch a trout or something yeah or someone that hunts or something yeah yeah low impact um so that sounds like you would get that's that's a lot of rabbit um i'm I'm trying i'm doing i'm doing the math in my head but it's i'm too slow doing it um yeah so that would be eight litters a year times say five so that's 40 rabbits a year right so that's that's a significant source of protein yeah um uh so you did you do all the butchering yourself in your house like do you need to do anything in particular to set up your rooms or anything to to do it cleanly or is there danger of or do you just do it in your kitchen sink? Like in or terms of food safety? Food safety and um, cleanliness, I guess, around the house. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not... I would say it's not totally ideal to do it in the house. Like if, mm-hmm. you, if you know if you have a yard, has a backyard that you yeah. could just use for the day that would be willing to help out. And I found that... Um, so I, I went to my parents' house because my mm-hmm. dad was there and um, was able to walk us through it and do the whole thing. But I found that um, once people sort of heard about what we were doing... Um, either coming over or I'd heard from somebody else, everyone mm-hmm. was really interested in the slaughter especially mm-hmm. because people, I think, are becoming more cognizant of the meat that you know mm-hmm. comes in the package mm-hmm. was belonged to a leg of an animal or mm-hmm. you know whatever it is. And so they want to be involved in that step in between you know when the animal was alive and when it became the package of meat mm-hmm. that you bought at the grocery store or the farmer's market or whatever right. it is. Um, so a lot of people that I met were willing to, you know, volunteer their space or ask, mm-hmm. asked if they could come over and see how it works or volunteer to help in the process. Yeah, I've definitely spoken to people um, who are fairly conscious 
or at least self-conscious about their eating habits and and they try to be moral about it um and uh, yeah people are mostly interested in knowing about the killing because they're unsure Mm -hmm. um how cruel it feels to take a life or not as Mm -hmm. the case may be Mm -hmm. um i can definitely see um how you would get interest in that especially in in an urban environment where people are so distanced from the the killing of meat yeah i think people want to connect back again Mm -hmm. and i think that it's not an easy thing to see but i i feel like it feels right Mm -hmm. and for me doing it was not easy at all but it felt like the right thing to do it felt like the best alternative of all the different things different ways to eat meat yes yeah um you were talking about how you raised quails mm-hmm. um, instead, and I, you said you raised them instead of chickens, at, but because chickens were not allowed. But I guess there was no regulations on quails at the time because they are not allowed. Well, so quail can be raised on a, an apartment patio or a balcony, right? Which you can't do with chickens. So even if you were allowed to do that, it's just not it wouldn't enough be enough space. space. Yeah. Whereas quail are, you know, a quail is probably a quarter. It depends on the chicken breed, but they're mm-hmm. like a quarter of the size of the chicken. So they right. need much less space. Um, and they can be happy in a smaller space. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of regulation, if you went to the most cities and said, I want to keep quail for food, mm-hmm. they probably... Mm, there might not be a specific regulation against it, or there might. It depends right. on the city, and you really would have to look into it. Right. However, if there isn't a regulation um, about quail in particular, a lot of people keep birds as pets. Mm-hmm. Oh, you could, I guess. Yeah, I mean, no tons of people against. keep cockatiels, for example, or cockatoos, or whatever, mm-hmm. whichever are the bigger ones. Parrots. Right. Parrots are bigger than quail, and people right. keep them in their house. So if you were keeping quail as pets and then you happen to be collecting their eggs because they lay eggs every day, yeah. you might as well eat the eggs. The ma- yeah, the major argument I've on- I've heard against keep- people keeping chickens is usually the noise that roosters make, yeah. um, which I- is not an issue for yeah. many other smaller species. Right, so. exactly, yeah. Um, so you can just raise them on a deck? Like, there's enough space for, like, a f- I guess, how many quails... Well, it depends on how big your deck is. Yeah, I guess patio. that's a good point. But... Um, but, and you do have to be careful of things like, you know, um, wind and, uh, you know, if they're up really high, you know, maybe put something in front of the cage so they can't see They still all need the way to be protected and, from the elements. Yeah, and yeah. sun. And so, you know, think about stuff like that. So you might have to make some modifications depending on what your deck looks like. But if you could fit, say, a, a regular rabbit hutch. So we talked mm-hmm. about how the, the hutch that I keep my rabbits in mm-hmm. um, is quite a bit bigger than the typical one. But if you picture a typical rabbit hutch, which might be, you know, a, a foot by two feet or, or two, even two by three feet. Mm-hmm. You could fit enough quail in there, so maybe six or seven or eight birds, depending mm-hmm. on how big the hutch is. Um, and that's enough to keep you in eggs for, you know, a single or, or a coupled person in an apartment. Right. That's a, that's I've had quail eggs, and they're definitely smaller than chicken eggs, mm-hmm. but if you use more of them, it's yeah, still... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, like, a couple quail eggs per small chicken egg or three per large chicken egg. So you need more mm-hmm. of them, but then you can also keep more quail in a smaller space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have tips in the book for how to do what, like what we've been talking about rabbits and quails and raising them. Um, just to bring it back to the book, uh, you, your, your book has sections on like how you did this and how mm-hmm. you would recommend someone go about, um, 
uh, raising quail or rabbits and I'm, I'm, is there any other livestock that you that you talk yeah. about in, in, that can be grown in an urban environment yeah there certainly is and I, what I tried to do is give a little bit of an introduction I, I tell stories about how I was doing it and how you know the trials and tribulations that my partner and I have gone through and all the trial and error that we've done um, and then, you know, sort of give an outline of what a startup budget might be like, what kind of equipment you need to start. So, like, really try to give people something to sort of jump off from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what else is in there in terms of keeping livestock? So there's bees. Bees. Um, so that's something. For is, honey. Yeah. yeah. And in urban environments, that's especially important in terms of conservation of, of bees because mm-hmm. um, bees are at risk, especially in agricultural areas because of pesticides. Mm-hmm. And there are less in urban areas. Um, and then another thing which is fairly controversial, but I fe- feel like is getting a lot more traction lately, is um, keeping insects for mm-hmm. food. So obviously bees are insects, but we eat the honey. But not yeah, the bees. We, we don't eat the bees. So are you talking about um, things like I don't know grasshoppers or? Uh, well, I don't talk about grasshoppers in the book, but similar, so crickets mm-hmm. and mealworms. Right. Um, and I only have experience with keeping those uh, grasshoppers. I I suppose would be also you'd be able to keep but certainly Mm -hmm. along those kinds of lines Mm -hmm. so totally ick factor everyone here in north america is like ew bugs i'm never gonna eat those i don't know if i could bring myself to eat mealworms but i have eaten crickets and grasshoppers in the past right so they were they were dried and crunchy and very salty yeah (laughs) Yeah. but that's a very adventurous Mm -hmm. thing to do for our culture so you know people i feel like are talking about a little bit more and the more people that i meet the more I'm hearing the same story that you said mm-hmm. about, oh, no, I actually have tried grasshoppers, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people are talking about it more because uh, protein from insects is, like, super sustainable. Very, yeah, very sustainable. That's the That was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. Uh, but it's actually hard to find a right. major source of... Uh, and the, uh, well, then the United Nations um, Food and Agriculture Organization has come out with a report talking about how um, sustainable insect protein is, and there's sort of this push towards developing um, sort of outlines of agricultural outlines of how we can promote it and make it work better, like on a worldwide basis. Um, and in other cultures in the world, all over the world, people eat insects. It's mm-hmm. really just here that we don't do it. So I think that's sort of the reason why people are talking about it more. And, mm-hmm. um but I, everyone still, it's like, oh, you know, it's just a novelty. I think it's more of a tradition thing. Like, we don't have mm-hmm. any tradition of eating insects, so we don't, it seems very strange and, for, and um, maybe foreign's the wrong word, um, but ick, there's Unusual. an ick factor. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, but one of the things that you can do, which is something that I did, because, you know, growing up in North America, in Vancouver, I totally had the same feeling, ick factor, no, I don't want mm-hmm. to eat, like you said, I don't even know if if I would eat dried, salted crickets or oh, grasshoppers. They're, they're great, they just taste, they taste like nuts, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But I, you know, I would have the same reaction. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, uh, the, um, the recipe that I have in the cookbook, which I feel like is... Uh, a good starter way of getting Mm -hmm. into insects is um, just grinding them into flour Mm -hmm. and then adding them to any flour dish or any, you know, baking that you would use and then just substituting some of the flour. So I I guess they'd be very high in protein, so they would form protein bonds like a high-protein flour would. Yeah. I don't know if that... I don't actually know if that's true, but they might. Well, I know that it's much more nutritious than Mm -hmm. just eating um, wheat flour or even Mm -hmm. some of the alternative flours. Um, 
So the recipe that I have in the book is for a chocolate cupcake, a dark and stormy. So it's like rum and ginger chocolate mm-hmm. cupcake with like a beautiful, um, heavy cream and chocolate ganache topping. Mm-hmm. And then you substitute um, one third of the flour and maybe one quarter of the flour mm-hmm. in using cricket flour. And then the rest is baking flour. So it makes it a little bit heavier and it's very nutty, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just absolutely Yeah, delicious. I imagine it would be denser. There's less, mm-hmm. there's less gluten <laughs> In, in crickets. Yeah, but. so a little bit more dense. But the thing is, um, you can grow uh, crickets and mealworms at home. And mm-hmm. so if you have, um, you know, an ethical problem or you're not able to grow your own rabbits, for example, or you don't want to... Yeah, either for space or exactly. you don't have the... Yeah, the, you just can't do it. Or you don't feel like it's the right thing to yeah. do for you or you don't believe in it. Totally cool. Um, but if you still want to have protein that you can grow in the city yourself, that mm-hmm. you have the control over making the choices of, you know, where it comes from and, you know, how the animals are treated, you could grow your own mealworms and crickets in mm-hmm. a closet or in a cupboard. Um, and then you can grind them up yourself. It's really easy. And um, like grinding them into mm-hmm. flour and then there's your protein. Yeah, there's actually not a lot of, now that I think about it, there's not a lot of protein sources that are non-meat that you can get that are also local. Yes. Um, I guess you could grow sunflower seeds or pumpkin seeds and some other seeds. But there's very few nuts that grow locally, if any. Yeah. And beans and lentils Mm -hmm. aren't usually local. It is actually really hard to just eat local protein if you're not going to eat meat. Mm -hmm. Um, Eggs, obviously. Yeah, eggs Um, are a good source. But if some, I I was guess I was thinking of it from a vegan perspective, where I have a I have a vegan friend who, I mean, I guess she probably gets all her proteins from things from very far away from around the world. So yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I decided that I wanted to try doing it all myself. Mm -hmm. Because I'd rather it be local, and I'd rather it be my choices. Right. Yeah. And then yeah, you know, you know how exactly. What it's very controlled, like you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about bad factory conditions or exactly. anything really. Yeah. I think that's one of the challenges that people have in urban areas, at least that I felt, was that it's not only that you, um, you know, might disagree with the way that something was prepared, you know, either grown or the, the, the conditions that the workers have to be under or where it came from, how long it was transported, all these things, but the fact is that most of the time you, you don't even know, you can't find out. You can't go into a grocery store and ask somebody that's working, you know, as a stalker about a shelf stocking person um, about, Mm -hmm. you know, where the lentils came from. That You know, you have no idea even the country they came from, how far they were transported. At at most, they're going to look at the packaging and say, hmm, says that it's from whatever country it's from. Yeah, and like no idea about, you know how it was grown, the level of sustainability, pesticides, nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big motivations for me to do it myself was that, you know, then I know. That's that's a very good reason. Um, I'm just going to give our listeners a break from all the talking for a second. Um, We are, um, uh, you are listening to Peanut Butter and Jams on CITR 101.9. I am talking to Michelle Catherine Nelson, um, author of the Urban Homesteading Cookbook. And uh, I'm going to play a song, and uh, then we'll be right back.
Did you receive your Metro Vancouver Transportation and Transit plebiscite voting package in the mail? If you haven't received one and you would like to vote in the plebiscite, simply call Elections BC before midnight May 15th to ask for one. The number is 1-800-661-8683. That's 1-800-661-8683. This message is brought to you by Elections BC. A sensational new show is coming to town. The Dusty Flower Pot Cabaret invite you all to attend the 1955 musical extravaganza, The Scarlet Queen of Mercy. This extraordinary theatrical event came from one spark of inspiration. What if our audience was cast as the extras in a B-movie musical? What's more, if you come dressed to the nines in the style of the times, you could be moved to the VIP section or pulled into the action on stage. This is a fully immersive, totally original, and completely unforgettable event. The Scarlet Queen of Mercy will be at the iconic Russian Hall at 600 Campbell Street in Strathcona. Shows run from May 14th to 17th, 21st to 24th, and a holdover possibility for May 28th to 31st. All shows are at 8 p.m. Mmm. And we are back. You are listening to Peanut Butter and Jams on CITR 101.9 FM. Um, that uh, music you just heard was Future Peasants um, off of their new Glittering in the Dark album uh, that was called Waiting for the Sunshine and before that was Adrian Teacher and the Subs and the song was called Thrifting on a Sunday. Um, With me in studio right now, if you've been listening uh, or uh, you already know, but if you're just tuning in, I'm with Michelle Catherine Nelson, the author of the Urban Homesteading Cookbook, we're talking a lot about foraging and farming in, the, in an urban environment, um, which is, so far, I've I found very interesting. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about foraging. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking, um, we've had people on the show before talking about foraging and just kind of like the basics and safety and like how to go about doing it if you're interested in starting it. Um, uh, you uh, uh, you said something interesting that I haven't heard before, which was talking about uh, invasive species mm-hmm. and like how much you should take of things if they're local species versus um, invasive. Um, can you can can you speak about what's in the book um, sure. uh, on that for our listeners? I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think foraging is one of the exciting things to talk about in terms of urban homesteading because people in urban spaces often don't have the space to do anything themselves. So I love to grow things, but I have never had the space to be able to grow more than maybe a couple containers on my patio. Mm -hmm. Um, But until I realized that, you know, you can go out into the world of the urban environment and forage in lawns and in people's gardens Mm -hmm. and all the weeds are edible. Not every single one. Not all of them, a but lot a lot of them. them. Dandelions are really yeah, the most common one that yeah, are edible. Yeah, dandelions, dock, um, mustard grasses, uh, purslane. There's all kinds of stuff that's edible that mm-hmm. grows in lawns and um, people's gardens that you can forage for. Um, and then one of the really exciting... So, of, of course, that's a very sustainable way of eating your greens because mm-hmm. they're weeds that are probably going to get composted anyway. But another thing that you can do... Um, 
that would really help in conservation is to eat invasive species. Mm -hmm. So actually go out into natural, you know, more natural habitats or, or in urban spaces that mm -hmm. are perfectly good as well um, and eat things that um, are taking over habitats. So that's what invasive species are, is that it's more than a weed. You know, we call things Yeah, can you, can you define what an invasive sure. species is just for people who don't know? Right. So I always tell people to eat the weeds. There's a, a big movement about, you know, eating weeds. Mm -hmm. um, and there's even a big movement about eating invasive species called mm -hmm. the invasivore food movement. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's just a, a really a definition that, you know, people have made up. But weeds would be really anything that we don't want growing. Mm -hmm. So, like, somebody that's growing a rose garden, say, the, there's a beautiful rose garden at UBC. The gardeners mm -hmm. that take care of that rose garden, anything except a rose that grows there is a weed. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an invasive species. Right. Invasive species, um, biologists would call something that um, it has the ability to take over a whole habitat. Mm -hmm. And so exclude all of the, the native species um, to the detriment of that habitat. So that things like um, purple loosestrife is an example that takes over wetland habitats. And mm -hmm. a whole wetland will become just purple loosestrife. So none of the native plants can grow in there anymore. The native animals don't have the same type of structure of habitat that they normally would. They don't have the same food sources, so they can't live there anymore. So that so it's, species... So it can be, like, ecologically damaging yes. to whatever yeah. the ecosystem yeah. is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so purple loosestrife, um, Japanese knotweed is another one that's invasive. That's one mm -hmm. that you see a lot of times on the sides of... Um, the roadsides in people's yards in parks mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to get rid of and a lot of times depending on the city the municipality and their regulations around pesticides a lot of times it's sprayed with herbicides mm -hmm. so another way to get rid of invasive species um, is to eat them mm -hmm. the ones that are edible so right i guess not all of them are no so. uh, no definitely not all of them are and not all of them are plants either so you can forage for invasive species that aren't even plants. Right. So um, there's invasive um, aquatic animals. So there's a periwinkle sea snail that's invasive mm -hmm. um, that you can forage for. Um, snails that grow in your garden, the little, um, you know, black ones with the little with yellow little spiral. spiral pattern. Yeah. Um, those are an uh, exotic species from mm -hmm. Europe that is also edible, escargot. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways of eating snails. might sound gross, but they're actually pretty tasty, some I have people, to say. Some people like snails, some people don't. But yeah, yeah if, if you're squeamish about bugs, you're probably squeamish about snails too. Right. But, uh, but if you're you get, not... Yeah, yeah, once you get used to eating them, they're actually really tasty. Um, and what else? There's... Um, there's other invasive American bullfrogs are another good example of a super invasive species um, that is delicious and prolific and easy to catch. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's even all the way to um, this invasive large aquatic rodent called a nutria. What's what's a nutria? So it's kind of like a is it like a huge mouse? Yeah, but bigger. It's like the a beaver size. Okay. Um, and they damage um, wetland habitats and they go in and they make tunnels and they basically just, um, you know, it would be like a big um, cat mm -hmm. machine, like an excavator going into a wetland and digging it all up. And so they do a lot of damage that way. And so they're moving into a lot of different types. They're from South America. They're moving into a lot of different type wetland habitats in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people hunt wild pigs. Why not hunt this big wild... I mean, it sounds weird because it's a rodent, but mm -hmm. apparently people hunt, people hunt rabbits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. um, I've never actually eaten one, but I would certainly promote the idea of, of you know, a, it, a lot of times there's eradication programs anyway. Mm -hmm. So we might as well make use of the animals that we're killing to try to save that habitat and eat right. it.
Yeah, it's a good way to, to do mm. both things at the mm-hmm. same time. So that, you know, that's a little bit more advanced, obviously, but mm-hmm. just on the discussion of eating invasive species, those right. are some ideas. There's other, um, you know, uh, seashore kind of things, aquatic things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, an easy, really easy way to start, Japanese knotweed and mm-hmm. purple loosestrife, both of which um, grow around Vancouver, mm-hmm. really all over Canada. Um, um, but there's a couple recipes in the book for, um, say, Japanese knotweed especially. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, from Japan, um, where it's actually uh, relished as a, a foraged food source. Um, but here, because it's it's an exotic species, it takes over habitats. Um, and so it's closely related to rhubarb, and it actually tastes a lot. It looks kind of like ba- a cross between rhubarb and bamboo, with big green heart-shaped leaves about as big as the palm of your hand. Um, but it tastes like rhubarb, so you can use it to make um, either savory or sweet things. So there's a recipe in the book for roasted Japanese knotweed panna cotta. There's a sweet and sour um, Japanese knotweed chutney um, mm-hmm. that you can have with fish or a darker meat. And then another thing you can do um, to sort of preserve the harvest, uh, the chutney you can preserve, and then also um, infusing spirits. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few cocktail recipes in the book. Right. And I thought that you might be interested because we've got the cocktail accessory store opening soon, yes. right? Yeah, I, I actually that. make my own um, bitters and oh, good. Uh, extractions sometimes at home. Um, some listeners of the show have won them as uh-huh. uh, uh, for donating to CITR in the past. Interesting. So. so you've got the experience in doing the infusions and mm-hmm. preserving nature's essence in that way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i guess so i didn't think about it that way yeah i mean well i mean it's it's preserving i Mm -hmm. mean that's where it was developed from was people wanting to you know when before refrigeration people Mm -hmm. had to figure out how to you know use the essence of whatever was growing at the time and be able to have it six months later yeah i mean the the reason i wanted to do it is because i wanted to add flavors to cocktails that i was just having trouble finding these flavors in stores Mm -hmm. there there recently there's been a lot, an explosion of like bitters um, from all over North America being made. But when I started, there it was only kind of just starting, mm-hmm. and so I was trying to find ways to do extractions to make flavors that weren't really available. And now, now there's a lot of the stuff that I made you can actually get um, mm-hmm. commercial versions of. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it's very easy to make extractions, mm-hmm. um, or uh, it, it's actually. So it's so incredibly easy. I think that's that's one of the... So the final section in the book is about um, preserving, and a big part of it is fermenting. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, fermenting, it's like... Or even infusing, you know, people get so intimidated, but it's like all you really have to do to infuse something or make a tincture is put whatever you want the flavor of to be in the alcohol. Yeah, in some vodka or overproof alcohol of some sort. And for a yeah, while. You put it on a shelf and, <laughs> and then uh, strain it. Yeah, it's really, really <laughs> it's easy. So easy. Yeah. And then mix it up to whatever, you know, taste that you like. There's yeah, like, I mean it's gonna be really strong tasting usually. Um, yeah. Depending if, on what it is. Depending if you're on making what it a is. bitters. Yeah. yeah. So there's a recipe in the book for a burdock lavender bitters. Mm, excellent. So that's a neat one because everybody recognizes burdock, right? It's mm-hmm. like that big tall plant that grows that has those big burrs on it that are like right. grow that gets stuck to you when you're running in the park or something. Right. Yeah, so the root of that is quite bitter. So it's like mm-hmm. a dandelion root. I don't know what you use to bitter yours. Um, I usually use dandelion roots, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, I have used burdock in the past. Um, I started using burdock because I was doing research into... I don't remember why, but I was reading about the history of beer. Mm-hmm. And people used to use, before hops were discovered, mm-hmm. people in Europe would use burdock 
to um, bitter their beer and it helps preserve it to some degree too. Mm -hmm. And burdock used to be used wild, like widely much more than, um, than anything else at that time. And then, then hops came along and everyone's like, Oh, hops are better. Mm -hmm. And that people stopped using burdock, but I was like, Oh, I mean, burdock's still a good bittering agent. I Mm -hmm. haven't had a burdock beer that, but I'm sure you could still do it. I think it might be a little bit harder to um, figure out the right level because burdock's mm-hmm. so much more bitter than hops. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it would be tricky, to trickier to balance it. But if you're if you're a home brewer, you could check. You could look into it. Yeah. Well, and there's lots of things that you can forage that you can add to your home brews if mm-hmm. you're into brewing. I mean, there's really something for everybody mm-hmm. um, in terms of both foraging and also preserving. Mm-hmm. So one of the recipes in the book again is about. Um, uh, it's an elderflower saison recipe, mm-hmm. um, and here around Vancouver, I think the elderflowers or the elder bushes are have just stopped flowering. So we mm-hmm. might maybe at the timing rise. End. It's not it's not ideal, yeah. but next year, yeah, yeah. So you can think about it for next year. But but we um, put the recipe in the book because it just mm-hmm. so happens that there's an elder bush right outside the door. Mm-hmm. So we thought one day we were brewing beer and we thought, oh hey, let's add the elderflowers. They're right there. Might as well try it, and it turned out to be a delicious brew. But there's a lot of different things that you can forage and then, you know, add to flavor your cocktails if you really like cocktails or make wine from berries. There's mm-hmm. a blackberry wine recipe in the book or cider. Um, so there's definitely the connection between foraging what you can, go mm-hmm. out and see what's seasonally available. That's the thing about foraging is you can't really go out with an agenda. You have to just go out and see what see you can find. See what's there, yeah. And it's like an adventure. It's cool. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, going to the farmer's market too. Like you, you're not you don't, always... Yeah, you don't know what's going to be there. Yeah, and then you bring it home and uh, figure out some way of, of cooking it or, or preserving it. Um, you said uh, in the, the chapter that talks about foraging... Um, you say that you should bring out a trustworthy field guide. Do you yes. have a field guide that you recommend for the Vancouver area? Uh, well, I actually just published a field guide. Oh, well, then this is probably <laughs> the one you recommend. It's it's a pocket guide. Mm-hmm. So it's an introductory guide to foraging for wild greens and flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and it's very urban oriented. So it's a mm-hmm. lot of weeds that you would find in your garden. There's things like um, stinging nettles, mm-hmm. um, which make a really good uh, early spring green. And you can even forage for them up to now. Mm-hmm. a bit later depending on what you're making um there's things like we were talking about earlier like dandelion greens and curly dock and um fireweed is in there there's invasive species um so it, there is it, but it's a limited number so i think there's around 30 species that, mm-hmm. that we've included um and so it's sort of a good beginner guide because you can go out onto your lawn and there's only going to be maybe five or th- six things that could possibly right. be growing in a lawn either the lawn around your apartment building or your yard if you have one because mm-hmm. um, grass is really um competitive mm-hmm. and so you know start there use the pocket field guide because there's not a lot of things that are going to confuse you mm-hmm. um, once you start getting more advanced or if you want to start foraging in more natural areas like you're um, you know going into you know forests where you have like a really high diversity so mm-hmm. in urban spaces you're going to have much lower diversity because there's less um, uh, good habitat for lots of different things. It's really only good for a few different things. Um, when you go into more natural spaces, you're going to have higher diversity. So it gets a little bit um, maybe more complicated to do your identification. So mm-hmm. if you're going to go there, then you might want to get something that's a bit more um, extensive that would have mm-hmm. everything that you might find. I really like having one of my absolute favorite books in the world is uh, The Plants of Coastal BC. Uh, Oregon and Alaska, I think it's called. Plants of Coastal BC. Anyway, it's by Andy right. McKinnon. Andy McKinnon. And Jim Pojar. Okay. 
How do you spell Pojar? P-O-J-A-R. Okay. Um, and I believe it's published by Lone Pine. Okay. And it has everything that you would find. Mm-hmm. So including um, urban weeds, including the native species that you'd see in forests. It's a lot of pages and it's a lot of plants. So I guess if you're taking it out, it's a little hefty. Yeah, it's yeah. hefty. And unfortunately, <laughs> I was asking one of the authors, uh, Andy, about whether there's a pocket, like a, an iPhone app for it yet. And mm-hmm. he said there isn't yet. So if you're really interested in it, contact the publishers and say that you want an iPhone app because mm-hmm. I would be so excited about an iPhone app uh, for it. Field guides are a great thing for iPhone apps to be made for I, I don't I haven't seen a lot of them yeah not for plants there's there's lots of birds because I think there's birders much more interest are, in birds yeah birders are crazy, birders are crazy. yeah, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. It's not I, I think birds are cool I, I think birds are cool too I just think the hobby's weird right I'd yeah. rather also I'd rather go out and identify things that I can eat <laughs> well I mean you can eat birds but I don't think right. that's what that, that's not really how what birders birds. yeah that's yeah, not really not what birders <laughs> go for usually yeah Buried thrush yeah. dinner. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, that's funny. Um, one thing that I've um, that I've always found is a little bit of a barrier when I've ever when I I don't go foraging a lot, but whenever I do, um, whatever I get, I'm always a little confused about what flavors go mm. with what. Um, and one thing that I really like about this type this type of book that comes with recipes in it is that you've at least tried these things together mm-hmm. before so you know mm-hmm. that um I, I mean like when i'm cooking with traditional ingredients like i know oh yeah like i'm cooking uh chicken so these are the herbs that go with chicken or something mm-hmm. like that but i don't it's like hard to be like what goes with dandelion or yeah or, or, and, and then you get into japanese knotweed or like more mm-hmm. things that are like less known and less eaten mm-hmm. um but you you've you've tra- tested these flavors out and yeah, uh, done done the adventuring. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And so in the the urban homesteading cookbook, I have a chart actually that's got listed a ton of different species, mm-hmm. and then it says you know what the scientific name is, where you find the thing, what it looks like, mm-hmm. what season you collect it in, and then also um, a common ingredient that it's like and mm-hmm. how you cook it. Right. So, and the field guide is the same. It'll say, so for each of the species, it'll, a lot of them, because they're greens, it's like spinach. Right. Or it's like chard. Or um, a lot of the wild greens that you can collect um, have like a lemony flavor because mm-hmm. they contain oxalic acid. Right. Um, so if you want to make, there's a recipe in, in the book for like a, um, a fire-cooked salmon with a cream sauce that has these lemony greens in it. So you mm-hmm. get that lemony kick that really goes with the salmon. Um, so I try to really give people sort of a background on, you know, how mm-hmm. to cook it and what it might, what it's sort of like. Make it, make it more approachable if you're cooking with it for the first time. Yeah. yeah. And to say, you know, Japanese not white is very, is very much like rhubarb. Mm-hmm. So try supplement or um, substituting knotweed for a, a rhubarb recipe that you already have used or mm-hmm. you know would work and then see. So you could make like a Japanese out. knotweed crisp? Sure. Yeah. 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 Certainly. Yeah. yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, is there any recipes in here that are your favorites? Um, So many of them. Which ones have I not talked about? It's funny because, you know, this is my first cookbook. So, Mm -hmm. and I've, and I'm so passionate about all the stuff I'm doing. So I put like every recipe that I could possibly think of that was my favorite recipe into it. So I find myself using my own cookbook. I don't know if that sounds like super narcissistic and I don't mean it to, but it's just, these are all my favorite ones. It's good. I mean, if you made a cookbook and you're like, I don't ever actually use those recipes, that would be a bad sign. Totally. Yeah. Not be so good. Um, 
Well, one that's really easy that I find is um, great to have in the fridge is the pickled quail eggs, mm-hmm. um, which I was mentioning earlier on one of the breaks about um, using them in uh, Caesars as a garnish. Oh, yeah. Caesars instead of the traditional green bean or asparagus. Um, so we always do that with friends, usually on Sunday mornings when they're over. So that's the best time. Nice, Definitely nice. Caesars are for brunches. For you don't want a Caesar in the evening. Totally. You want it. You want it in Sunday morning. Yeah. That's basically the only time I've ever yeah, like exactly. had a Caesar. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so that's a really good one. There's, um, there's another section on growing plants in uh, like aquatic plants in small. Um, uh, patio pocket ponds, I call mm-hmm. I call them. So um, there's a recipe in here that I really like that's with um, lotus and taro root chips. Um, so I think most people might have seen lotus in, in Chinese cooking. It's the one that's sort of a, a round chip that has little uh, round holes yeah, in it. Yeah, it has little holes mm-hmm. in it. It's, it's very common. You can find it in Chinatown quite easily yeah. Yeah, if so you're you, looking to buy it. Yeah. So you I mean, you can actually grow it yourself in a mm-hmm. bucket of water, basically. It's really easy if you've got a little patio and you don't want to do the quail thing. You can grow your own um, aquatic plants. And so that's a, like a smoked chili um, root chip with a lemony herb dip. And then there's another one with um, another really invasive species that you can grow if it's contained in your little patio container called azola. Um, and there's a watercress and a Zola, a chilled watercress and a Zola soup. That's really good. I'm just randomly opening the that's book okay. at this That's point okay. That's okay. We're actually running low on time. Okay. So um, uh, one thing that would be good to say is uh, where can someone find this book if they wanted to to get more uh, information? Well, it's available at local bookstores. So depending on where you are, um, I know that it's available at Pulp Fiction locally here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I believe Barbara Joe's has it at this point. Um, if you, the book warehouse on Main Street, if you don't have access to your smaller local bookstore, which of course it's much better to go there and support um, local if you can. We're, in, we're like almost everyone who listens to this show is in Vancouver, so we don't even need to, we don't need to recommend those okay. other places. We don't yeah. have to talk about the big stores. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. They know where they are. They know what they are. Yeah. So yeah. 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 The big stores do. We okay. won't talk about them. But, <laughs> but, uh, if you request it, maybe it'd yeah. be good for your career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, this has been Peanut Butter and Jams, and this has been uh, Michelle Catherine Nelson, um, author of the Urban Homesteading Cookbook. If you found this conversation interesting, go check it out um, at your local bookstore. Yep, and you can also um, find me at The Urbanist on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. That's T H E R U R B A N I S T. Great. Um, Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. No problem. Thank you for coming. And this is, um, I think, suitable to go out on. This is a song by Weed.